Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. This morning we're going to continue on in our series titled Saints and Society, so we're going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11. <laughs> I laugh because in the midst of the pandemic, all that's going on, we've been outside a meeting, now we meet again, and where we pick up this morning for our first in-person gathering is head coverings in 1 Corinthians 11. So that's, that's where we're at, so good time. Uh, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16 is where we're going to be at today. So let me pray for us. I'm going to pray today pastor's prayer out of Psalm 8. The Psalms are a gift for us. We have 150 of them. They're songs, they're prayers of of the highest highs and the lowest lows. So when you're on the mountaintops or when you're in the valleys, reading the Psalms and the more you live in them, the more you can relate to what's going on in them. Today I'm just going to read a couple verses from Psalm 8. Because the Psalms can shape the way that we pray and shape our prayer life. And so I'm going to read the first two verses from Psalm 8, but as I read them aloud, I'm going to pray through them as well. So join me in prayer. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Lord God, you are our God, our master, our creator, and our sustainer. As your son taught us to pray, so we see here that you are our Father, our Lord. All of your creation tells of your majesty, and all of your creation points us over and over again to your glory. Father, there is not a speck of sand in the deepest depths of the ocean that you do not know about. There is not a snowflake that falls upon the mountains that passes outside of your knowledge or outside of your control. Right now, there are people inside of this room and inside of our church family who have circumstances and situations where we know and and can understand that we are out of control, but God, you are not. Nothing happens inside of this universe that does not pass through your hands and your good, sovereign hands of love and control. When we see the highest of mountains, we are reminded that your glory is above them and the heavens. When we see the vastness of the ocean, we're reminded that you are infinite and so is your love for us. When we think about the depths of the sea that mankind has never come fully close to exploring, we're reminded that you are eternal and for eternity we will never be able to fathom or grasp all that you are, Father. The waves remind us of your great power and the highest of trees with the deepest of roots remind us that we are rooted firmly in Christ through faith, and held more secure in your son's work on our behalf than any other foundation this world has to offer. Verse 2, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes, to steal the enemy and the avenger. From the heavens, Father, that declare your glory, to those of the smallest and helpless in creation that declare your glory. You have chosen what is weak and lowly in the world to shame the strong, Strength is shown by those who place their full confidence in you for every breath and every situation and every circumstance for our salvation. God, remind us of that. That like babies that are helpless, let us so be helpless. Let let, let us see that it is greater strength to place our full measure of confidence in you for our salvation, for our redemption, but also in what we're going through in life right now. You are not absent. You are not disconnected. You are very present. 
Father, for those that are hurting and grieving around the world. We pray for your peace. We pray for your comfort. In this time, in this situation, with so much turmoil going on, with so much animosity, with so much tension around the elections, Father, we pray that we are reminded at the core of who we are for those in Christ as a child more than anything else. Unite us in Christ in this season. Father, you could have crushed the enemy with your limitless power, but you chose what the world deemed shameful and foolish. You chose the cross. Just as you brought light from the darkness, darkest moment in human history, when all seemed lost, let us know that your hands are working in the same way right now in every detail in our lives and at this moment to bring about your perfect plan that will be for our good and your glory. There's not a second you are not involved or a detail that is outside of your hands. The same hands that brought about our redemption through the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me say this as we, before we jump in <clears throat> and, and read the text. I, I know this is, this, is, uh, this is not a popular text. I know this is very controversial. Uh, it might sound weird to say this, but I'm excited to preach it. Uh, I told my wife that. She said I'm weird. And, and I think part of Part of it is that oftentimes when we get to texts that challenge us, I like that. Because there was this song that was written years ago, I think by uh, Alanis Morissette, what was her name, but what if God was one of us? In every way, we try to make God into who we want him to be. That way we are no longer challenged by his words. So when we, when we approach a passage, we will do every sort of gymnastics move we can to, to, to jump around, maneuver, and do whatever we can so that we don't have to submit to what God's word says. Because at the core of who we are, we know that there's something intrinsically wrong with us, but that is our aim and that's our goal. This is going to be challenging. I recognize that. I am a pushing 40-year-old male who's preaching on head coverings. It's, it's just not popular. And so I, I want to say that. I want to recognize the room. I want to recognize the context. Eugene, Oregon. I, I get all that. But let's let the word of God bear on our lives. And, and, and if we have struggled today, let, let's struggle with this. Is this the word of God? I absolutely wholeheartedly believe it is. And am I submitted to the authority of God's word? And do I look there to dictate truth or to my emotions? So that's going to be my appeal. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to uh, dive in. So head coverings, that's the title. That's not our main point. Our main point today is the saint's distraction. And I want to show there's a positive side to being distracting and a negative side. So the saint's distraction is what I want you to remember throughout this sermon. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she, will, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man." Neither was man created for a woman, but woman for man. <laughs> Thankfully, Paul clears it up here in 10. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Never, <laughs> nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. 
Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is for her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of God. Let's dive in and remember the saint's distraction. I, I, I honestly think this sermon could be preached in five minutes or it, could, or, or it could be belabored out for a long time because at the core of what's going on here is principles versus customs. So principles versus custom or culture or traditions. And, and Paul even says in verse two, he's like, I commend you. Paul is gonna be straight up. If there's something not to commend, which we'll see in regard to how they're taking the Lord's Supper next week, he'll let them know that, because he, he says, he goes, I do not commend you in this area. But for uh, whatever Paul has got feedback, if you look at verse two, he's commending them. He's like, hey, in this, you're remembering me and you're remembering what, I, uh, what I've taught you and, and, and you're remembering the traditions as I deliver them to you. When you hear traditions, oftentimes something emotionally rises up in you. If you grew up in a very traditional family, if you grew up in a very traditional structure with rules, or if you grew up in a very traditional church, then maybe that makes something rise up in you. And I think we should pay attention to our emotional response. But I believe in this, is that customs and culture might change, and our traditions might change in how we do stuff. We take... um, uh, we do our liturgy different than some churches do. We do our communion different than some churches do. But in all things that we do, the principle can't change. And the thing is, is we, whatever we must do, whatever tradition we have, it must support God and His glory and what His Word says. And so the reality is, is we have many traditions that we don't even think about that we've just adopted. Like, I won't make you raise your hands, but if you're married in here, I, I'm going to guess that you have your ring on this finger. But if you ask, why do I wear my ring on this finger, many would say, I don't know, just what our culture does. But the reality is, is that the ring used to be worn on the thumb. And then someone came along and said, did you know that there's a vein that runs through this finger that's connected to your heart and it's called the vein of love? And so they started to put the ring on this finger. And then rings actually used to be uh, just... uh, um, uh, made of iron in, in, in uh, the Roman society because it symbolized strength and ownership because the males owned their bride. And then some horrible human of a being named King Maximilian, uh, much later on Maximilian, decided to give someone a diamond. And then so we adopted diamond rings. There's also the theory that, uh, that as the uh, person performing the wedding ceremony, he would say uh, a blessing, and he would say, Father, Son, and Ho- uh, Holy Spirit, and then he would slide the ring on the finger to say amen. There's also pragmatic theory that this is your working hand, this is not, you don't want to get it near the outside, so this is just to save his finger to put it on. There's all these theories, but the reality is we have a, we, we, we have a tradition that we've adopted, and we don't think much about traditions. But this is a tradition, and so what Paul is saying, look, traditions change, think, tr- uh, 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 um, customs change, but the principle must still be there. The principles cannot change. Another example of this that cultures change is just hairdos. We have some pictures of some hairdos, I think, over the past maybe like 20 or 30 years. The bowl cut, you don't see a lot, <laughs> you don't see a lot of people rocking the bowl cut anymore, so... Next one, a rat tail. I actually don't know that anyone ever, this was ever fully a thing, but that's literally a rat with a tail. So next, the mullet. The mullet was a Billy Ray Cyrus, and then uh, what's his name from, uh, is it Family Matters? Keep, keep cruising. 
Uh, no, that's, those sideburns <clears throat> are mean. But no one rocks those anymore for the most part. Keep going. Yeah, that guy. What show was this? Full House. Okay, yeah. But Mullet, this is, this is just a prime example that over the past 20, 30, 40 years, we could keep going, that even hairdos have shifted. Culture changes. Things change. What used to be a, a, a way of uh, scandalous attire is, is not scandalous anymore. And so these things change. And at the core, what Paul is saying is this, is in Corinth custom, it was clear that prostitutes did not wear a covering and they did not keep themselves covered, especially in the gathering. And so Paul's like, don't look like a prostitute. And, and what, he, what, what the principle would be that would stay the same is this, is, is at the core of this is let's not do anything, the saints, that would distract anyone in the worship gathering, because that's where we're at, in the assembly of God from giving praise to God, to his glory, and beholding all that Christ has done for them. So that's why as we look at the saints' distraction, the saints need to be distracted with bringing glory to God, not distracting anyone else from beholding the glory of God. Verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Let me say this. This is so unpopular. But can we challenge our cultural pride for just a moment that we think that we do things right now in the 21st century, but yet the things that our grandparents did or our great-grandparents, we would be like, I would never do that. Just know that as you sit here today, your grandkids and great-grandkids will say the same thing about us. We, we have a pride that thinks that our error has, has some, some, in some way cultural superiority and has arrived at the right way to be the most free and liberated, but the same things that have been going on throughout history. You see, in some cultures, arranged marriages today still exist today, and people don't feel oppressed by that. In some cultures today, they wear a lot more clothing than they do in America or out west, over east, and women do not feel oppressed by this. In the South, they say, yes, sir, and yes, ma'am. I grew up in this culture. I did not feel oppressed by that. We have different things. And to say that the way we do things is the absolute right way that things should be done is, is, is crazy. If you look at the story of the prodigal son, if you look at that story, we, we love that story. We're like, oh, it's so beautiful. This father goes running after his son. In other cultures, that's the most shame-ridden story you could ever tell. It is a story about a man who runs and loses all, all dignity chasing his son that has squandered his wealth. That's shameful. But when we approach topics of sex and of roles and stuff like this, then this is where we go, whoa, whoa, whoa. So I'm just saying, why do we get emotionally flared up? And as part of it, what are we reading from our culture into the text? A.W. Tozer says that the most important thoughts that come into our mind are the thoughts that we think about God. And so I would encourage us that when we read God's word, we must remember that God loves all of his children equally. That this is the same good God who's not disconnected. He doesn't have a wizard's rod waiting to just, uh, just bring down a curse on someone. This is a God who is deeply loving and connected and present to every moment. Who delivers us his good word from his good hands. That have come to us through the apostles. And I want you to see this in verse 3. But I would have you understand that the head of every man, meaning that man has a head, it's, it's, it's metaphorical language, is Christ. The head of every wife is her husband, 
and the head of Christ is God. Though you might get emotionally worked up, this text has said nothing about inequality or quality at all. All that is said is that there is a head to the man, which is God, and there's a head to the wife. Notice husband and wife. We're not even talking full. In the gathered assembly, there's a head to the wife, and that is her husband. It has said nothing about inequality. And here's the reality, and maybe this is a little too blunt for you, but let me say this, that just because you have a problem with roles, and just because you might have a problem with submission, know and understand this, the Godhead does not. What we have done in our culture is said all roles and, and, and any sort of submission is oppressive and it's bad, but if you look at this text, it says that, 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 that um, uh, wife is, uh, that husband is the wife, uh, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ, don't miss this, is God. Look at that. God, Christ has a head, his head is God. We would say we're a Trinitarian church. We believe that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all three, all fully equal, but there are roles inside of the Godhead, and, and there's a level of submission. We see, over, uh, we see in John 16 that the Spirit is submitted to the Son. We see in John 14 that the Son is submitted to the Father. We see in John 17 that Jesus is praying in the high priestly prayer, glorify me as, as I glorify you. There's this mutual submission. There are roles, and just because our culture has stepped in now in the 21st century and said, this is what it is to be liberated should we look at the Godhead and see this is what it is to have roles and have submission in such a way that brings honor and glory and love to the other? But I know and understand this, and this is what I'm pressing up against, so let me spend some time here. That there are people in this room and there are people in this church and people in our culture who have had bad experience with male leadership. There are people who have been married to miserable men and have had the Bible uses this word, worthless husbands. There are people who um, have, have seen uh, uh, what it is to be authoritative and domineering, but not what it is to be meek and what it is to be gentle and what it is to be lowly, as Christ would describe himself. So there's been d much da damage done by men and fathers and people in general. And so oftentimes when we get to this, what we'll do is we'll read our emotional experiences from what we've experienced into the text and say there's no way this could be. And what we should remember is that every failure we see in a man, we are reminded of the greater man, Jesus Christ, and the perfection and hope that he is that we actually need to place our hope into. But I think there's also a challenge in this. This text becomes real whenever men want to take it seriously. I wish more and more that men in our church and our church family would come and say, I want to be serious about what it is to love and serve my bride and my family. And the reality is, is we have church cultures filled with men that have zeal for everything else, but never ask their wives how they're doing, never ask their kids how they can pray for them, and never meet their wives. Even in the midst of a pandemic right now, our men need to be stepping toward their wives and saying, how can I love you? How is this impacting you? And how can I pray for you? And when we fail to see that, then there's a pushback inside of the women. But when men give their lives towards their wives and towards their families in love and in adoration, I want to say this for Ronnie. When I traveled with Ronnie to, to Reno and we stayed in, in a hotel room together, I was so encouraged by the fact that every night he called his wife and said, I want to pray with you. How can I pray for you? And he prayed for his wife every night before bed. I'm not saying that makes this text easier, but when women have a, a leadership that looks like someone who is, who is willing to lay down their life and lead and love and serve and engage in that sort of way spiritually, it does help. So 
on behalf of man and anything you've experienced, I would apologize for that, recognize that, and, and recognize the sin, but also recognize God's structure and his goodness. Verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. Simple. It was disgraceful for a woman to have her head shaved. And so he is saying, either cover your head or shave it, but since you wouldn't actually shave your head, then just keep it covered. And here's the thing, if you go, this is so oppressive, let me remind you of this, of the culture that Paul is in. Jesus was countercultural. Back then, and, and the difference in Christianity and Judaism is this, is that women had an outer court at the temple. They couldn't even step beyond the, uh, the, the court for the women into the court where the men were at, which is actually one step closer to the most holy place. They, they had a separate place that, they, uh, place that they could pray and that they could worship. Um, women weren't allowed to engage men publicly in conversation. This is the culture. Women weren't allowed to be taught. And actually, rabbis said uh, uh, not to teach women and, and waste your time doing that. Instead, teach, teach the Torah to your sons. This is the culture. So Jesus comes along, and women accompany, uh, accompany him in his ministry. He teaches Mary. I, I mean, he, 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 women play this massive role in this. And, and here's the thing. They are now being taught, and so much so, inside of the worship gathering, what they're doing is they're prophesying and they're praying. That is radically different from the culture around Paul. So if you say this is oppressive, you need to understand the cultural context that women didn't do this. And now Paul's saying, here you have the same Giftings, prophesying and praying. Here's how you do it in, in the context of the gathered assembly. That's a good thing in the culture where Paul is at. Paul is just saying this, is that you're going to be distracting if you do that in such a way that makes men question whether you're married or not and whether you're available or not because uncovering yourself made this declaration that I'm available, I'm, uh, I'm free, and I'm looking. He's like, if you're going to prophesy and pray, don't pull, uh, uh, don't pull other people's distractions to you. Don't pull attention to you. Instead, when you do this, do it in such a way that it makes everyone else look to the glory of God, look to what Christ has done, and be consumed with that. Don't be a distraction. Let me ask some honest questions. And, and again, this is touchy. When you get ready for church, because this is about the, 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 the gathered assembly, when you get ready for ch church on a Sunday morning, what do you think about whenever you're getting dressed? Do you think, how does this make my body physically look? How will this most benefit my figure? How do these, I'm just going to be uh, blunt, how do these pants make my butt look? How does all this make me look? Or, do, or is the better question that you can ask whenever you're getting ready, whenever you're going in for something, is how will I in every way not cause any distraction so that everyone that sits inside of the worship gathering can hear about how amazing Jesus is, how beautiful he is, and give glory to God? And here's the thing. We, we can swing far, and you can become legalistic on this. I had this ridiculous conversation with a guy once who was challenging me on my wife wearing jeans and was like, women shouldn't wear jeans and we should, you shouldn't have tattoos and we should only read out the King James Version of the Bible. And, and so I would say, here is the principle. The principle is dress modestly and be modest and don't be a distraction so that everyone in that service and in the worship assembly can give glory to God and so they can stay focused on where they're at, not so they can be panning the room going, oh, I guess she's available, I guess she's available in a very sexually perverse and, and very sexual culture as Corinth, but also as the Pacific Northwest, this was a big deal. And Paul's just trying to say, look, it was expensive 
to write and, 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 and to produce text. This is not wasted words. This is, this is something that Paul finds very important as we gather together to not be a distraction. And here's the reality. If your aim and goal is to catch someone with physical beauty, just know you're going to have to maintain that and keep them with that as well. Sadly enough, I see oftentimes women uh, and, uh, that, that, that want to give themselves physically to a guy because that's what they've known for so long and, and, and that's what they can draw attention to. Here, here's, here's a true story because I think what that is is it's, it's fig leaves when we go back to the garden of, of what we're trying to, to distract people with. You're, we're like, look at this. Look at my physique. Look at my clothing. Look at something else because I'm too actually ashamed if you actually get to see and know what's underneath all this at the core of who I am and my character. When, I'm, I'm embarrassed to tell this, but when I was, first became a follower of Jesus, I was uh, hanging out with this girl that was way out of my league, and I knew that spiritually. And so, like, I acted like, <laughs> I acted like one day we were, we were in a creek that there was a spider on my shirt so I could pull my shirt off. Yeah, it's, I was a tool. I, and I did that. I did that. Here's the honest truth. Because I knew that I was out of my league based upon my character and based upon who I was in Christ. I was so immature that, that I had to draw attention to something else. Oftentimes we give ourselves. Oftentimes we dress and oftentimes we do these things to distract people from what's in here that we're ashamed of, that we have not dealt with at the core of who we are. And, say, and what we do is we say, look at this so that you don't have to look at this. Or I'll give myself to you physically because I, I don't know what it is to connect emotionally. I don't know what it is for you to get to know who I am in Christ. Then I met my wife, and she would attest to this, that she wasn't overly uh, attracted to me in all these senses that I knew, but I was encouraged to know that later on in my development, she said that she was more attracted to my character and my personality. What we keep people with, or what we gain them with, we'll keep them with. Verse 6, 7, 8, 9, because I'm going to keep cruising here. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made for woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Okay? Keeps getting more fun. What Paul does here is brilliant, and it's theological. Customs change. Traditions change. So, what, what the argument is, it's the same thing then as now, is there would have been pushback to all this. And so what Paul does is it's, it's so brilliant and it's theological, is he's like, hey, look, um, your argument is now after Christ, all this is gone. Your, your argument is, is, is this kind of, uh, as, as the redemption rolls out after Christ, that all this goes away. But what Paul does, he's like, no, 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 uh, let me do this. Let me take you back to uh, um, uh, before Jesus, all the way back to the beginning. Let me take you to pre-fall. Let me take you to the garden. Let me take you to a world where there was no sin and man dwelt with God. And let me point you there for a theology. Culture will shift. Things will change. What, what women wear, how men dress, what their hair looks like, all these things will shift and change. So let me do this. Instead of pointing to a cultural moment, let me take you back to a cultural moment where there was no sin and there was no shame and, and, and a man and a woman existed inside of a garden completely exposed, completely naked, without guilt, shame, or fear, and let's see what it looks like there. And what he says with that in these verses is, look, it's still the same thing, is that from God came man. And from that man came woman. And then from that woman, from here on out, what happened was humanity. And what we see is actually a, an existence of grace. God, uh, man never earned his right to be created. God gave life as a gift. 
woman never earned her right to life. It was given as a gift. And no one in the birthing process orchestrates it. Instead, a child is created solely passively by grace by two parents. So what is happening here is Paul's going, even before sin entered the world, there were still order. There were still roles. And there were still different levels of headship. Though we don't like that, it's existed before sin. But there was no inequality. There was no domineering. There was no woman, as we see from a curse, trying to rule over man. And there was no man who was omitting himself from leadership or committing sins in leadership. It was a perfect world. They didn't have to hide. They, they, they didn't have to disguise themselves. So Paul takes them there. He takes them to the garden and says, no, 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 no. Pre-fall, when God created everything good and man and woman existed together, there were still these roles. This still existed. This headship still existed. It's not a result of sin. How we live it out now, that's been tainted by sin. Verse 10. Like I said, this is where it gets crystal clear. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. What does Paul mean? There are a lot of interpretations. Paul could be talking about fallen angels. Um, and angels throughout Scripture, they minister. They enact God's judgment. Angels in Psalm 91 are guardians. What is going on here? We can make this really simple. Is that Paul tells us in verse 6, or chapter 6 before this, that one day we're going to judge angels. And so I believe this, that before God's glory, there are angels that are covering their eyes, crying out to him, that we live and model our lives, not, a, 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 not in such a way to gain attention from angels. We model our lives, not just in this gathering, but knowing that there's a spiritual gathering in every way that we live. We are living to bring glory to God. And so we're not only to not be a distraction towards our brothers and sisters in Christ, but even to the angels, everything we're doing should be pointing to God's glory. 11 and 12. <clears throat> Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of a man, nor man of woman. That's good, right? For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. I, I hope people always read this through. And all things, look, all things are from God. He's saying, look, there's, there's equality. Man is not independent of woman. Woman is not independent of man. There's, there's this two, whenever they're brought together, become one. And it even says in the garden that man should not be alone. This is a good thing. Then Paul appeals to rationale. He says, 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself tell you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? Back then, you only had long hair if you were in a state of mourning. That's what this means. Context matters. So men had short hair. In, in the Greek culture. But if a woman has long hair, it is to her glory. For her hair is given to her as a covering. Our job is to not be a distraction. Anytime that we're going into a worship gathering, any sort of assembly, our aim and goal should be to pray the same thing that John the Baptist prays. Lord, let me, in, uh, let me decrease that you may increase. If you're coming in in any sort of way to say, Lord, I want people to see this though you might not be saying that, or draw attention to myself or be a distraction, what you're actually doing, though you're not praying this, is, is you're saying, Lord, I want you to decrease, that I can increase. And so what he's saying is back there, in this custom, in this culture, what it looked like to be modest, what it looked like to be married, and what it looked like to respect and honor your husband was to remain covered in the assembly. Because you didn't want to bring shame on your husband, nor did the man want to bring shame on his wife, nor did the man want to bring shame to Christ. In the same way today, 
we shouldn't want to do anything to our husbands and wives or to our brothers and sisters to bring any sort of shame. And we see here in verse 15 that the hair is given as a covering. Here is the good news. In the garden, when man and woman sinned, God said something. He said, where are you? Where are you? It was God calling them to come out. He was like, where are you? It's not that God had no clue where they were at. He knew where they were at spiritually. He knew where they, they were at emotionally. He's saying, where are you? Come to me. And so God steps toward them and, and, and then they respond well I, I was naked and 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 so i was hiding from you and then from then on the fall sin enters the picture and then what what happened when they sin is they try to uh, cover themselves with these fig leaves and, and and we know just very practically that fig leaves are not a good covering and so god gives them a covering he actually kills an animal and and he gives them animal skin but god also knows this is just a temporary covering that's not going to be everlasting or eternal and so when we fast forward throughout the Old Testament, we can just see argument after argument, family hostility, and so much brokenness throughout it. And then what we get whenever Jesus comes on the scene in John's Gospel, we get him doing his first miracle. What is it? He turns water into wine. Why? It's a shame culture. In a culture filled with shame and feeling so much worth, or uh, 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 unworth, God says, through his Son, in the flesh, I want to take the shame away. And since that would have brought so much shame on the host to run out of wine, Jesus turns all the water into wine. But then what happens throughout his ministry? And what happens at the end of his ministry is this, is one of the most offensive and shameful things that could happen to you in this culture was that you could be slapped by a Roman soldier. And the reason why Scripture tells us to turn the left cheek is because they would backhand you with their right hand, which would strike you on the right side, and so Jesus says, turn to them the left as well. Jesus, whenever he went to endure the cross, was slapped by the very hands he created to love and serve and care for one another. The hands of the created started to slap the Creator. And then he was spit on, just as offensive back then. It's shameful to be spit on. But here's where it gets even more offensive. His beard wasn't shaved off. We see the, the shame in this. If you go and read 2 Samuel 10, you, you, you will see that, um, that this man named Nahash dies and his son uh, Hanon takes his place. And so David sends servants to go comfort Hanon, but they think that the, his servants are spies, so they shave their beard. What does David do? He says, go and stay in Jericho until your beards grow out because of the shame that that brought upon them. Jesus didn't just have his beard shaved. He had it ripped out. Could it get more shameful? He then had a crown of thorns placed on him and a robe where they mocked him and brought shame on him. He was then stripped and he was whipped while being mocked. Could it get worse? The only thing that could be worse in this culture is to endure the shame of the cross that only the most vilest, grossest criminals of this time bore. And Jesus Christ bore that. At the cross, he became shame and took on all of our shame. Why? So that we wouldn't have to live with that sense of unworth or grossness that we sometimes feel. Jesus took it all. He didn't take a part of the shame that we sometimes feel. He endured all shame. He bore what we are, vile sinners who are filled with shame so we could become what He is, innocent, pure, righteous, and perfect, filled with righteousness for the glory of God. 
And, and you, you would argue, well, I feel like this, and I'm not, or you don't know what I've done. My argument isn't that you haven't sinned or transgressed against God. My argument is that I'm not going to compare what you've done in this room or anyone to what Christ has done in his infinite state as an eternal God on the cross to cover and trump anything that your sin has done in your life, period. I'm going to appeal to that. And I would say that the saints need to be distracted, but we need to be distracted and consumed by what Christ has done in our place for us. And that's where our distraction should be. When we gather, we should be so distracted and consumed by the beauty of Christ. And here we see that the woman's glory is her hair for a covering, but now women in this room and women all together have a greater covering. You no longer have to bear your shame. Instead, Jesus Christ bore your shame. You are not defined by anything that you have done or what's been done to you. You are defined by what Christ has made you. I want to say this over and over and over again from here on out as I wrap up. You can't be what Jesus was not. You can only be what Jesus was when you place your trust and faith in him. Let me say it again. You cannot be what Jesus was not. Jesus was not vile, gross, sinner, impure. You can only be what Jesus was. What was he? Righteous, holy, innocent, and pure. And that's what he has made you, and that's the covering you have. He has covered our shame. He has clothed us in righteousness. Our job now is when we enter into this gathering or any gathering is to clothe our, our husbands and wives and our brothers and sisters with the, shame, well, I'm sorry, with the same covering that Christ gives us. Let me read this story as I close. Week after week, I go and see my son. Week after week, I long to give him a hug but can only talk to him behind glass. Week after week, I see him looking beat up and wearing an orange jumpsuit. Week after week, I receive emails of hate about the vile sins my son committed and how he should burn for eternity. Week after week, people are disgusted that I visit my son. Week after week, one truth doesn't change. This is my son and I love him. I would take his place behind bars. I would love for him to wear my clothes and I would gladly wear his and I would like to take the sin, blame, and disgust that people have for him upon myself. Why? One simple reason. This is my son. When the day comes when he is released, I will be there for him with a brand new suit to wear. And even when people yell at him and mock him and tell him how vile and gross he is, I will wrap my arms around him, walk with him, and embrace him. Why? Because he is my son. When he runs, I will chase him. When he falls, I will pick him up. Why? Because he is my son and I love him. This is what Christ does for us. He trades spots with the most vile of criminals. We should have been there. Then he suits us with the best of suits, his clothes and robes of righteousness. He is not ashamed of us. He will not run from us. He runs towards us. He covers our shame and he will hold us when we need to be held. And he will hold us all the way into eternity. Why? Because we are sons of his father and because the father loves us. That's why he sent his son to the cross. You can't be what Jesus is not. You can only be what Jesus was. Paul closes, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Our response to this text is this. The saints, are not, are the, the saints should be distracted with all that Christ has done to cover our shame, and we should only live and model our lives in such a way that would never bring shame to anyone else. But in how we conduct ourselves with our husbands and wives and with our brothers and sisters should only be to exalt Christ and remind them of the shame that Christ has covered them with. Or God, the shame that he got rid of for them. Let's pray.
Jesus as someone who struggles to feel guilty constantly, vile and gross, and not enough, and it was not done enough. I'm thankful for the constant reminder that I'm not defined by my actions, but defined by the actions in the life of Christ. As we approach the table today and celebrate Christ's broken body and his shed blood, let us remember that our shame has been taken on from you and your righteousness has been given to us through faith. Amen.